0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from
1: Gen Con in beautiful and now better smelling Indianapolis, Indiana.
0: (laughs) Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode includes... Tabletop and adventure gaming. How to write good. History. Movies. Occultism. And of course,
1: food. food. Robin, your Kickstarter campaign for Feng Shui 2 is in progress, even as we speak, closing on Friday, October 17th. How's it going?
2: Well, we're recording this in advance, so to find out where we're at, head over to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing Robin Laws or Atlas Games.
1: Statistically speaking, you're probably about to smash through another stretch goal.
2: We have arranged our stretch goals for easy smashing.
1: Like panes of glass being carried across a Hong Kong street, perhaps. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is.
2: It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultra-violent heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition.
1: And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood-spattered gunplay, it features the Key War.
2: Yeah, the player characters fight across key time periods to control key sites of geomantic power, and thus history itself.
1: And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and -er furiouser?
2: I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer, on a bullet-strewn path to redemption?
1: Because I am the cop of magic. Clearly, I am the magic cop.
2: Well, look at, because there's a hopping vampire headed this way.
1: So to repeat those Kickstarter search terms, the fun can be joined by typing in Feng Shui, action movie role playing, or Robin D. Laws.
0: Uh, So, uh, as is our want uh, our uh, live episodes mostly consist of questions from the audience so I hope you brought your most obscure and trenchant puzzlers but also as is our want we kick off our episode by pulling out the nerd trope cards provided to us by uh, listener Caleb Tate and randomly draw one from the nerd pile one from the trope pile and then Ken correlates the contents of these mysterious cards in what we call nerd trope. And so today's nerd card, drawing at random from the pack, uh, you can affirm that none of you have met this set of cards before. Muhammad. Muhammad. And the trope card is... Voodoo. Voodoo.
1: Well, there you go. This has been Ken and Robin are immediately censored on RPGNet. Okay, uh, the first thing that you have to establish with this is that, of course... Voodoo is uh, the name for the Afro-Caribbean religious complex, I guess you would say, created by the experience of African slavery in the West Indies, uh, South America, and to a lesser extent, the American (laughs) South. Now, the other half of the slave trade is, of course, uh, in addition to the Atlantic slave trade, is the Muslim slave trade, in which another 11 million Africans, most of them from uh, the Bantu areas of Central Africa, are brought into uh, the Mediterranean coasts, into the coasts of Arabia, Oman especially, but other uh, cities such as Zanzibar were famous slave ports. And so you have a whole different set of African slaves on the other side of the world, around the Indian Ocean, uh, the Red Sea, Persian Gulf, and to a lesser extent the Mediterranean. And so logically one must infer that there are similar... Uh, syncretic influences being driven in the African communities in those areas. We have historical evidence of slave rebellions against Muslim domination going all the way back to the 9th and 10th centuries AD in what is now southern Iraq. Uh, There was a a black uh, African slave republic that was set up in southern Mesopotamia held out for about 10 or 15 years against the armies of the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, That would be the parallel to the Cadoplos, the uh, the old sort of free slave territories in Brazil, where they would leave the the plantations generally after explaining to the Portuguese what a terrible idea it was to have a bunch of uh, slaves in a plantation with no reinforcements, and then they would set up an independent slave republic the biggest of those that we know of in Brazil because obviously they would not advertise lasted about 50 to 80 years and contained maybe something like 20,000 Africans plus some unknown number of uh, Brazilian uh, uh, natives
0: uh, they, they wanted to advertise but they couldn't come up with the logo right,
1: yeah, there was a lot of argument about branding because they were against it
0: and uh, laughter
1: And so we know that there are are similar dynamics happening in the Indian Ocean Basin, Red Sea, Persian Gulf, Mediterranean. The interesting question that you have to ask is, Why don't we hear about any of it? Why are these voodoo communities submerged? Why are there not a thriving religious culture along those stretches of the coast? And the answer is because in those stretches of the coast, they had access to the Lemurian gateways. Uh, Iram of the Pillars, of course, the, the, the great lost city that vanished out of southern Arabia sometime around the 5th century AD, just drops off the maps, is never seen again, and then shows up again when the space shuttle finds it on the tomography in the late 80s, in that period, somewhere between... Um say, 1,400 years of blank space. There is an invisible republic of Lemurian gateways. The African, what they called the, the Republic of Zanj, or the state of Zanj, which is just their general term for, for black people, uh, the, the, the Zanj state in Mesopotamia found the gateway, the, the secrets of the keys to the Lemurian gateways in Sumerian temples, Babylonian temples there in Mesopotamia. They took those, uh, after their rebellion was uh, suppressed, took them down to the coast, fled down into Sudan. Then, as more slaves are being brought, they're bringing the escaped communities, the, the, the Marans, the Mar- called Maroons in, in America, or Marans, this the equivalent, in the Arabian Sea Basin, into those secret hideaways, those secret uh, forts. And so the question that has always plagued historians of, of Islam, historians of, of the Arab expansion, is what happened? What's the deal with, with uh, they're, they're literally at the gates of the Renaissance, they're, they're going to take down Vienna in 1529, they're going to take down Rome in 1484, then they just stopped. All the juice goes out. Within 100 years of the sick men of Europe, they're being run by Albanians. What happens, of course, is pirates happen. Henry Every begins to uh, sail into the Indian Ocean. A number of other uh, Western pirates begin to sail into the uh, Indian Ocean. They brought the voodoo knowledge, the voodoo technology from the Caribbean into the Indian Ocean. They've made contact by uh, remember, they're they're plundering pilgrimage ships. They're plundering ships from India carrying vast amounts of gold, silver, treasure, precious gems, manuscripts, artifacts, idols, etc. They're plundering those. They make contact with the Lemurian gateways. The pirate republic of Libertalia, which it now exists only fictionally, but at that time was a thriving pirate republic, brought into contact with the with the Lemurians. They use the voodoo technology of. The uh, of, of West Africa to destroy the Islamic states from within, basically uh, sabotaging them through a series of Lemurian teleport gateways. The result is an invisible pirate African Brazilian probably state that is in a dominant position over the ley lines. The reason that we can't do magic, that white guy magic, that Western magic is always basically an excuse to sleep with underage girls and not actually produces anything, is because the Afro-Brazilian-Lemurian pirate combine has drains up all the magic out of it. They have been engaging in um, uh, slant drilling, essentially, right. of the noosphere. Right.
0: And for short, sure, we can call them ALP. ALP, yeah.
1: right, yes. Uh, or you can call them Libertalia, if you wanted right. to just give them a general name although that's you know, imposing a white name. You could also call them Zange. Anyway, this, uh, they, they are existing as slant drilling all of the magic out of, uh, beginning with the Mediterranean, but then into the West and everywhere else. There is, at this point, as the Internet spreads knowledge of Afro-Caribbean voodoo into those areas, as more and more people in Africa get connected up to the, to the cell network, up to the Internet, and again, they're not going through landlines, they're going through cell towers. It's a whole different uh, magical technology, they're that,
0: being. That's good without
1: saying. It's obvious, but you know, yeah. some people might not have done the reading. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> those new technologies are being made available throughout Southern, Central, Eastern Africa, and because of the terrible job that, that uh, news organizations do of of bringing that news, we don't know it. We're just you know stupid and ignorant. And, again, that may be part of that whole Zanj, you know, making things fail that they pulled on the Muslims. They're now going to pull it on us. It's like stage two of the libertarian takeover. And so that is where we stand now. The question, of course, is do you stand with Zanj or do you not stand with Zanj? And that's that's the question they're all going to be asking us very, very shortly.
0: Uh, so I hope you're all prepared uh, when that happens. You, you heard it first here. So uh, now's the point in the podcast, in the live podcast, where we start opening up to questions. Uh, yesterday's Feng Shui 2 panel, I recorded and I said, well, I'll, I'll repeat all the questions for the benefit of the recording, and then repeated zero questions. So I'm going to try and do better this time, but uh, Ken, if you hear me not uh, repeating a question, you can jump in. Oh, I, I, I perhaps, may I be able to repeat Okay, a so uh, who... Uh, has question number one for us. So the question is how to do a uh, sort of cod Celtic campaign <coughs> in which the heroes confront Cthulhu.
1: Or Cthulhuesque monsters.
0: Celtish versus Cthulhuesque.
1: esque um, I think that in terms of themes, uh, one of the powerful elements of Celtic uh, lore is the notion that uh, once there is a story about you, once you are written down or into the cantosphere, you have a larger connection. You have more power. That's why druids can destroy kingdoms by, rip, by, by satiring. Uh, they, they go into the court and they just make up rhymes about the king and now he exists as a laughingstock and a, a terrible king and he's destroyed. That's why the druids have to have the arts of memory and the memorization. So it's knowledge of uh, specific words, phrases, chants. I would play that way up I would have your creatures be creatures that either are wordless and literally indescribable, that the attempt to describe them is what destroys you or transforms you into them. I would have creatures that exist in words so that you have your Necronomicon jazz, except it's a a scroll that when you read it, it rewrites you, rewrites your DNA, rewrites your saga. It satirizes you without a, a bard being necessary. There's a great bit that Robert Graves has in The White Goddess, Uh, which is talking about the the, the Song of the Trees, which is an old uh, Welsh poem that probably doesn't mean anything or means a bunch of things that we don't have the context for. He believes that it's the secret magic alphabet of the Druids. If you use that, you have trees that are letters, so... Literally, the landscape is a book, and reading the landscape gives you power. So you could have lo- ley lines and, and either Leugur, you know, huddled underneath the ley lines or serpent people that put them down and planted those trees in the, you know, in the Partholin Age or whatever. I, I think you can, there's a lot of uh, themes, but I would stick with, with words and meaning and, and reading and existence in that perspective. I think that's really
0: promising turf. And for your narrative frame, make it, this is why there are no more druids. Uh, that this is the beginning of the... They have their uh, highly complex society where you can satirize people and and bring them down and they've got uh, their culture and set up and you can make up as much of that as you need. But this is the day... The first adventure is the day when the weird creatures from outside arrive and break everything down by not obeying the rules. So the, the heroes are the ones who first encounter this and then you have an arc that is all about the entire downfall, not just of the characters, but of the entire culture. And so that you have their uh, micro, individual personal downfalls and the macro downfall of everybody. And that can give you your incredibly depressing spiral into horror that we all desire in a uh, Cthulhu-esque game.
1: As well as having those Arthurian renaissance, resonances for your
0: uh, quad-Celtic stuff. Uh, Next question. So the question is, what happens in your campaign where Arthurian knights meet ley lines? Meet ley lines. Uh, I mean, the thing that
1: ley lines are, uh, well, you cannot say traditionally because they literally do not exist traditionally. They were made up by a nice man named Watkins who thought that he was doing archaeology. And only in the 1960s did hippies decide they were also magic. Ley lines, um, but that said, traditionally, ley lines are conduits of power. Right, that the earth is, a, it is like a body and there's uh, chakras in the earth like, uh, so your acupuncture traces all your key flow the earth has those key flows that are also traced uh, ley lines are the flow and you tap into that with the equivalent of acupuncture and the acupuncture can either be a magical ritual that makes your eyes come out and whatever or it can be a, a stonehenge that lets you focus all that and keep all the crops sound and the moon in the sky and everything else that you need magic and religion for so when you're tapping into power, there's always three big questions. The first, the easy one, is what did you want to do it for, right? Did you want to win the love of the fair marguerite? Did you want to blow apart your ba- the bad guys? Did you want to sign on pass What? What's your goal? That's the easy one. The second is what does that power come with? Power is never free, not in anything, not in Newton, not in the real world, and certainly not in magic. So what comes with that? What bargain do you make wittingly or unle- I'm drinking up this delicious oil. It's full of nitrates. It's full of uranium. I don't know what's in it because I'm an idiot. And so there are, there, you can think of it as contamination. You can think of it as taint. You can think of it as color. You can think of it as a possessing force. But it's going to come with something, right? That's always something that happens when you tap into power. The third thing is that power does not exist in a vacuum. Someone already wanted that power. They stored it where they have their own tap downstream and now you're screwing with that, and they're like, hey, jackass, that's my power. And that means there's people who already know how to work the damn ley line, and you, Johnny-come-ley line lately, are coming along going, look at that, free power to win the love of the fair marguerite! And then the your game-setting equivalent of, of mobile oil is coming down saying, no, that's not going to happen. And so if you imagine everything horrible that you know the the Putin with Gazprom or Chevron or whoever would do to you if you were going around saying, I'm just gonna tap natural gas and oil and not pay. That is the kind of thing that your wizards or serpent men or druids or whoever is the, and they might not even bad guys, but they're used to having a monopoly on power and now they don't. So they will react in ways that seem like bad guys. So in addition to the sort of, you know don't plug in the wrong voltage that you're talking about where your brain melts, there's also an actual in-game ongoing consequence where they they send the equivalent of a meter reader first to say, was it just a leak? Was there a meteor? Meteors happen. Oh no, it wasn't a meteor, it was cloth heads. What's our cloth head procedure? Alright, okay. And then maybe they bring down a little team to sort of like slap them around and say and then maybe someone comes down to offer them the franchise and they're like, oh great, you're interested in worshipping Satan. Good, here's the form. And they're going to fill that out. And, yeah, and press hard. I mean really hard. No, harder than that. And that, that you know, the offer to recruit is often one of the most underutilized and most terrifying things you can do in a horror game. And so I, I would recommend thinking about those three questions when you think about your ley lines, or your lay equivalent lines. Um,
0: If you're doing Arthurian legendary, the Arthurian legends are uh, less procedural and more dramatic. They're about the interactions between the knights and the other members of the court, and of course the triangle between Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot. And so another way to play that is uh, either, not necessarily instead of, but in addition to the external threat that Ken is describing, is what happens if they all do get power, right? Because that's when the trouble starts. So get everybody to explain what each individual uh, character wants to access that power from, as Ken suggested, and then engineer them so those things are all contradictory and that in order to for you to win the love of the... Fair Marguerite, that's that's fine, but I want to control the kingdom, and I have to kill Marguerite in order to control the kingdom. Because so she's the heiress, or she's something. the heiress. So that, <laughs> so weave all of those things into a uh, why you can't have this dynamic, and get them set against each other. Uh, you'll need you know something robust that allows you to do interpersonal conflict <coughs> drama system <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, on top of uh, yeah. If only there was some sort of a
1: game engine for that.
0: Yeah, if yeah. only there were. Um, <laughs> And that way, uh, because it's, it's when the characters get power and then want to hold on to it that things get really treachery
1: And then whenever, you know, if they ever seem like they're cooperating, you've got, you know, Chevron, Putin, Satan there to say, uh, to offer one of them yeah. a deal, right? It's like, you know you're not really getting the love of the fair marguerite you're like getting a timeshare on the fair marguerite i think maybe what you want to do is screw him yeah and i can do
0: that it's when the record company weasels come to robbie robertson exactly you're the star (laughs) yeah right forget the rest of the band yes you should be a solo act yeah another question uh so the question is what is the greatest freshest nonsense ken that you have just recently stumbled across in your research the 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 newest
1: the newest dumb hotness. Let's see. Oh, man. I'm, I'm trying to remember There's because there's a couple of, of things that I've sort of um, uh, run into. There's a guy who has written his own version of the history of Goetia. Now, Goetia is the good old-fashioned medieval, going to draw a sigil and summon a demon, and I'm going to make sure to say the name of God a couple of times so that the church doesn't put me in jail for it.
0: Not magic if you say Not God. Not magic if you say God.
1: It's religion, even if you're getting treasure in the love of the Marguerite by dealing with demons. So Goetia, everyone has a pretty strong understanding of where that comes from. But this guy has a theory that it's actually descended from Greek necromancy. Now, this is kind of like really deep weeds nonsense. Because it's nonsense in a field that is already nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and then is you know bracketed around by fairly sketchy historical research. And a lot of that is because people, there, there's not a lot of... Uh, a-list historians doing research into demonology for whatever reason um, but this guy's theory is that it's not actually medieval demonology uh, in the way that we understand what it is, it's descended from Greek necromancy and he has developed an entire alternative uh, chain of transmission that doesn't go through any of the standard renaissance texts as to how the goetic tradition blossoms in the early modern period despite there being literally no evidence for that and he's got two well,
0: giant. They work harder if there's more well, evidence. Yeah, you know, points, points he's to got diligence.
1: two giant books. They're beautiful and they're really well laid out and they're sold through this uh, bookstore that when you order them is very very surprised and happy. And and personalizes the letter. If there's anything else you want please let us know.
0: We've heard of this mysterious Ken Heights. Yes. We'd like to offer you a volume discount. And and so I
1: don't know if it's ever going to turn gameable because the trouble is like I just had to explain all that so that you understand why it's.
0: Because the next question is what do you do with this information? What do you do with this information? why do you dedicate your life to proving this thing? Right. Well, that's a whole different question. Um, but if
1: you're playing a game in which the characters are summoning demons, nine out of ten players will not care what the intellectual tradition behind the demon summoning was. What they want to know is, do I get the love of the fair marguerite? Come on. Snap it up. And so that is, is high-octane bananas, but it's really inside baseball. High. I, that's sort of the sabermetrics
0: answer to your question. <laughs> Uh,
1: next question. And it's called Goa Sophia, I believe is the name of the books. Another question.
0: Okay, well, I'm not sure that uh, that uh, Loblaws will have this, but uh, uh, Ethiopian Berber spice. It's a red spice. If you eat Ethiopian food and you get that uh, vegetable plate and there's the different colors of lentils and you go, oh, wow, this, the, the, it's the red ones. And this uh, spice you can then take and and put in other things in your cooking. And I often use international ingredients and then do my own crazy things with them. Uh, So it's a red powder. You can get it like chili powder in a place like... uh, I buy it in Kensington Market in a place called House of Spice. But any place that's like a a spice specialty store will will have this. And uh, the obvious thing is to put it in a lentil dish, uh, like a lentil and... uh, You can, uh, you know, do a a lentil and hamburger dish with it or... uh, uh, I've now started putting it in uh, chili con carne, which is not Texas chili, it's the other thing. Um, and uh, also, it is uh, really great as a popcorn spice. I don't put any of those commercial powders on, on my popcorn. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, usually put a little bit of chili powder and a little bit of curry powder, or but uh, also chili powder and berber uh, spice as a, a popcorn topping. is really interesting.
1: Now, is that the same thing as the Urfa Biber that's the Turkish stuff that's also a red chili-like?
0: Powder, or um, do you know it sounds it, it sounds like a similar uh, word and be, similar because I
1: r- found that in San Francisco the last time I was looking around and orpha be bear and I'll bet that this works with bear bear spice too but I I smelled the orpha be bear and it's like a chili powder smell but it's a, a, a sort of a, a almost it's not quite floral but it is sweeter and and more like that and my thought was I'll bet this is really good if you make roast chicken with this and a pomegranate glaze, right? And, well, I mean, roast chicken and pomegranate glaze is good anyway, right. so, you know, worst case scenario. But it turns out I'm right. Uh, go figure. <laughs> and. <laughs> So if bear bear spice is the same thing, I'll bet it makes a really, I know it makes a really good roast chicken with pomegranate glaze. Right. And if it's not the same thing, it would also, probably make a still good. Makes yes, a good <laughs> but so. if it's not the same thing, look for Urfa Biber, B-I-B-E-R, which is a Turkish, uh, but it sounds like it might be the same powder with two different names right. at the right. other and ends and of a, the trade.
0: It might be slightly different formulation because it's not sweet particularly. It's uh, yeah. more, almost sort of an interesting dusty. Uh, yeah, no, there's there's yeah there's some depth but not hot.
1: there's some depth to the to the bee bear as well. But it, it, it I mean the reason I wanted to mix it with pomegranate is because it does go all the way up that flavor profile. It's it's got not quite like an ancho but almost that umami, not umami really but sort of dark and flavorful. And then the like I said there's those floral or, or 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 sweet notes at the at the top. And I thought that pomegranate would sort of pull it along and then bring the ancho with it and so or the ancho like with it. And Urfa Bee Bear was, was terrific. I, I hate to sort of maybe recommend the same thing as you, though. It's sort of a, a, a cop-out.
0: I, I, I think you, you came at it at a diff- different angle.
1: Yeah, and pomegranate glaze on roast chicken, if you haven't done it, you, you can do that, and you can do it with anything that you would put uh, with, with a sweet glaze anyway. So obviously it's going to be great with ginger, so you could do a pomegranate ginger glaze. You could do um, a pomegranate, uh, you know, if you wanted to, onion, if you like sweet onion, you could do a pomegranate onion glaze. Anything that you've done... Successfully with, with orange, you can do with pomegranate and it's going to be a different kind of sweetness and I think a, a nice one.
0: Uh, next question. So th- the question is how to bring the uh, rich possibilities of Ceylon in the, I guess, the, the 30s, are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, into a trail of uh, Cthulhu adventure that is actually an adventure rather than a bunch of cool ideas.
1: Traditionally, if you're trying to do any kind of recapitulated myth as a core element in your story, I find that it helps to have the myth seem to be a a thing that just is always a pattern that recurs, right? That the reason that this myth happens in Ceylon is not necessarily because uh, Ramayana was anything special, it's just because this is the land where the myth of that thing keeps happening. And forcing the players into it is great work if you can get it, but even if it's not... You have someone that they care about or someone that they're interested in who finds themselves enmeshed in that. And by trying to help them, they become the hero. They become collectively uh, Rama. And um, you can do any number of variations on that. But if you have a sense that this is a giant... It's like the story is on uh, the the tread of a really big truck tire or a tractor tire. And it just keeps rolling. And every so often, that story comes around and imprints on the ground underneath it and it's not a sentient being it's not like lord sita is up there saying "Ah, i will destroy you no the story is just physics right and if you think of them as trapped in its gravity right or uh, even possessed by it is too human trapped in its gravity is better or poisoned by it is maybe a better way to think and so you can you can shadow cast it in your head and say, oh, oh, Connie would be really good to be um, uh, the, the, the lady who's kidnapped and someone would be really good as, as the wizard who works with the serpent men. And maybe they play that role and maybe they don't or maybe they switch it up. But once you can get that sense of an inevitable story progressing with them dragged along in the machinery, they will know how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of a living myth.
0: I think a really great thing to do with a myth like that is upend it and, and confound your players' expectations. So if it's about recreating the myth of Ramayana driving out the serpent people, well, what does driving out serpent people mean? Does it literally mean that you've cast them out, or does it mean that, in as in Lovecraftian lore, that you submerge the serpentness into the people-ness and make them... So maybe Ramayana just took the serpent people and made them people in order to suppress... They're evil in their power. And so there are people who are trying to get the player characters to interact with this somehow and go and get the thing that Ramayana used to suppress the serpent qualities. But the players think they're saving the day in their typical uh, sort of uh, colonial era mentality approach, uh, yeah. mentality approach to the, the third world. But really, the people who are engaging them to do this are the serpent people who want to activate their serpent blood and need the artifact to do that so it's one of those switcheroony things where uh they think that they've you know conquered the uh the savage cultists and gotten this artifact and then when they bring it you know back to the uh, london club to present it to their uh, archaeological benefactors then the benefactors all turn into serpent people and then the adventure begins Uh, next question Oh, we're faced with a commercial now, Ken. No, not a commercial. Uh, where, we, where we are being asked for, for future plans for the Dracula dossier and other Knights Black Agents. Well, I'm, I'm
1: just worried that this uh, plugging of our own stuff is going to infect the rest of the podcast. Uh, That's I'm, what I'm worried I'm about. I'm sure we can carry on bravely after this. And not only that, but it'll reach back in time to infect right. the rest of the podcast. Right.
0: So not only are, are we plugging, but we have already plugged. We have
1: already always plugged. <laughs> yes. Uh... Dracula Dossier is the upcoming next uh, big release for Nice Black Agents, uh, and it is in the stages of being finally written. The plan is to kick-start it probably in October. Hopefully by the time this drops, it will actually have been announced that it's going to be in October. But let's say if, October.
0: If, if not, you're not hearing any of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, this was
1: just uh, persiflage. Um, but the plan is to kick-start it, and hopefully by then there will be a manuscript that is, you know, not laid out and has no art and will need editing and touching and, and, and probably will get expanded as stretch goals are met. But you'll have something with which you can play the game. And the game is that um, in 1894, British intelligence attempted to recruit uh, a vampire as an asset. And this mission... Always goes well. This... Yeah, nothing. That's, a, that's like a... It's a standard playbook. Yep. Uh, this mission went uh, predictably terribly. And Bram Stoker writes up the after-action report, and MI6 is like, well, you can't have that. It makes us look terrible. So they tear out all of the sources and methods information from Dracula and let him publish the remains of the novel as disinformation.
0: The rest is ridiculous. No one will believe it. Right.
1: So the full draft goes into the MI6 archives. In 1940, they're really, really worried that Hitler is going to take over Romania, and they're like, we need anything. Who's got a plan to stop Hitler in Romania? One of the surviving guys from Project Edom says, well, actually, if you're looking for anything, we have that. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1940, an SOE team is sent into Romania to awaken Dracula and use him to stop Hitler. Well, but At this time, it goes well? The, well, as you know from history, Hitler was stopped and never... No, hold on. What was that? Romania goes fascist immediately. <laughs> So that doesn't work out. 1977, they begin noticing that there is a drain of intelligence from MI6 to the Romanian Securitate, and they're like, how can there be a leak with Romania? It's, oh, right, there was a guy who has mind-control powers and can make immortal, undying, ever-loyal servants wandering around London unsupervised for two months. Yeah, that was probably a bad idea. So there's a mole hunt for Dracula's leave-behind network in Britain. And... uh, in 1978, the mole hunt ends and no one is told whether it was successful. And so the, one of the mid-level archivists or analysts on that mole hunt, he's annotated the Dracula, uh, the, the first draft of Dracula, so has the 19, the surviving member of the 1940 SOE team. He then puts that into a file to be uh, sent to another analyst if certain conditions are met. In 2011, those conditions are met and it turns out that after 7-7, MI6 is like, yeah, you know what? It turns out Dracula hates Muslims. This could work out really well. So they uh,
0: Dracula. According to what's left in our records, records the other ones worked,
1: worked out. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, they awakened Dracula to set him on Al-Qaeda. And as one can predict, Dracula is happy to eat Muslims, but he's also happy to eat everyone. He's ecumenical. He's ecumenical. And so now that draft, so it's been annotated by 1940, 1977, and 2011 analysts, all of whom are off the map, has fallen into the hands of the player characters. So the handout will be the first draft of Dracula with those three annot- three generations of annotations. You can follow the annotations to clues in any direction. So like the Armitage Files, it's an improvisational collaboration of a campaign. Whatever direction you go turns out to be the direction that leads to the conspiracy. And that, and the 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 way you can get away with having a 300 page document dump is that it's a 300 page document everyone's already read, so they already know Dracula. It's not that hard. Um, and that will be the the thing. So it'll come out as Dracula plus annotations plus the clues that those annotation the, the the events and people and locations that that leads to. So all of that will be a gigantus Night Black Agents uh, campaign, uh, and that will come out. Also, there'll be individual PDF adventures that have nothing to do with it. But yeah.
0: Um, Also, uh, one of the really cool things that uh, Simon is uh, planning on doing as one of the uh, upper reward tier elements is a facsimile edition of Dracula that matches the original first edition, which has this weirdo yellow cover and Mm -hmm. purple lettering uh, and will be uh, indistinguishable uh, from the original except that it contains all these horrible truths. Yes, the the extra sources and methods. Yes, so if you love beautiful props, uh, you'll have... uh, Beautiful one to put on your shelf along with the one for your players to TV. touch. Yes. Next question.
1: <laughs> but you're, so you're saying, what system would we choose to run Doctor Who in if we yeah. were to run or design a Doctor Who game? Is that the question, basically? Yeah. All right. Uh, well. Two two
0: slams on Stephen Moffat aside. Right. Uh, well, I would go to the thing that I find familiar, which is if I'm looking for a pr- procedural uh, system to run something that has a lot of. Uh, tropes and narrative hooks in it, and uh, particular structures uh, that I would go with HeroQuest, which is my uh, sort of generic, open-ended, player-defined abilities thing, where every ability is equal to every other ability, and that's why you know the doctor and the companion are always sort of on an equal footing in terms of uh, problem solving, because a companion, uh, putatively though, is not a you know an ancient alien with two hearts with all of the uh, super genius, but. The, you know, having a good heart or being plucky uh, is just as important as uh, you know, knowledge of the Daleks or you know, something where the most action in a Doctor Who episode is running away mostly or talking the Daleks into uh, destroying themselves and uh, that uh, has the mechanism to have social combat be as effective and, and important as combat combat.
1: So would you um, have a hero plane or god plane or, a, 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 you know, higher level action? Is there a component of Doctor Who that you think fits that concept, that that's when they go into the time stream, that you could add that thing that they generally don't write in um, as something that they would do? So going back in time and fixing something is like going onto the god's plane and altering the world?
0: I, I wouldn't try to mash up Glorantha with, with I'm Doctor not seeing Who, saying
1: but Glorantha, but the Glorantha-like mechanic that would do that same thing in Glorantha.
0: Right. Could be, well, yeah, in... Uh, in HeroQuest, anything you do can then be stored. If you get a big success, you can store it up as a bonus to use it later. Right. So if you go back in time and fix something, you can then go ahead and use that bonus on your next encounter with the Dalek or whatever. So I think on that level, uh, you know, I wouldn't use the words God Plane or HeroQuest or yeah, everything, right. but that, that mechanic totally supports the way the Doctor Who episodes work.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Uh, next question.
1: Wow! Um, talk about your hard rose to hoe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the anti-magical sphere, obviously. Yes. Um, the grid pattern uh, mean, locks out uh, unruly influences. Uh, Nap City is I. Uh, is oh, it? Sorry, we, we failed to repeat the All question, right, yes. which is: What is occult or eleptonic about Indianapolis? Indianapolis. There is a mysterious curse that causes hotel bars to close at 10. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to explain that one somehow. Right.
1: Um, I, I think is, uh, does it, is Indianapolis on the Wabash River? Is it No. no? no. So it's not on any river. It's white, or white, or white the White River. The White River. Okay. All right. Because um, I, I remember just wondering what the hell it's doing there. Anyway. <laughs> um, so that might be that it's like dropped. It's like, you know, the Flash had Keystone City and Central City. And like Keystone City was, you know, sort of Pittsburgh-y, but Central City was just drawn in the middle of a great open Carmine Infantino space. I kind of think maybe Knapp City might just have been a Carmine Infantino sketch that sort of manifested at some point. and Everyone was like, well, it's in the middle of Indiana. I guess we should call it Indianapolis. Does that sound good to everybody? That's
2: what it was supposed to be. Yeah,
1: right. And so the um, I, I think that with, with something like Indianapolis that is so obviously white bread. Uh, and and straight uh, angles and the rest of it, I think you kind of want to start looking, you can either go like Robin says, that it's an anti-magic magic shell, I think you might want to play with the notion of um, Pynchon's uh, Mason and Dixon uh, the notion that there's the surveying is sort of creating the world, and so by building this square grid in the middle of Indiana, in the middle of the most white bread state, you know, east of the Mississippi, you're creating sort of one of the anchor points that keeps America sort of Right, You know, conservative and God-fearing and flag and all that.
0: And, and keeping the mechanism of capitalism going by uh, invoking the, the gods of movement so mm-hmm. that you have uh, you, you yeah. know, the, the race. Uh, right, yeah. Racing is all about uh, a completely pointless activity that continues to cyclically uh, repeat itself, hence America. Uh, that's,
1: and and, and that, actually, that actually you can play with the notion because of course the chariot races in Constantinople had religious uh, significance. Uh, about the uh, the contest of the gods and that they had a uh, a, a ritual nature to them that they were done on on certain high holy days. Obviously, uh, India is done on Memorial Day, which is a high holy day. So there's possibly that that's a descendant or maybe it's an emergent property of magical America. Maybe Indianapolis, the Indy 500, is at odds with the city of Indianapolis, that they exist in some sort of crude balance. There's a great book by George Corliss called The Geobibliography of Anomalies. And all it is, is just an index of every single city, town, county, you know, wide spot on the road in North America, and then it indexes by things. So, like, you turn to Boise, Idaho, and it's like, here are all the uh, unexplainable big cats, here are all the UFOs, here are all the ghosts, here are all the Satanists, and it's, you know, just all listed out. And so, I am sure that if I had Corliss's geobibliography, I could find you know, all of the hauntings, UFOs, whatever the hell. Is, is this
0: book on your Amazon wish list by any chance? This Ken? book is on my freaking bookshelf, my friend. <laughs> oh, okay. It was uh, it, it, my, my... There's an if statement that yeah. puzzled me momentarily. If I had it here, right. Oh, okay, yeah, I get it, no. right.
1: Um, no, my, my wife gave that to me uh, for Christmas, and it was one of the Christmases we spent at her family's house. And so she gave me that, and I gave her uh, the handbook of poisoning uh, forensics. And
2: <laughs>
1: you have never seen a more confused batch of mundane relatives than when we are opening our respective Christmas gifts and, oh, it's just what I wanted.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, Randy, okay, did you have something insane the, to say?
2: The city was designed, the, layout, the initial layout was designed by plugin Font. Right, so okay. Anything you want to say weird about Washington, D.C., he then, then decide,
1: designed Indianapolis. Right. Okay. Great. And Lynn of course, was a Freemason and had ties with you know, all those a lot guys. He Freemason yeah. ties to Indianapolis. Right. It might be productive as a game to say that there is, the intention is to, is to make it right. like you were saying, the sort of the, the white bread uh, right. machine, and then the cracks in the machine or the, or the trellis, the, the, the vines that are growing up the trellis is all of the weird stuff like the Indian heads that are on the sides of buildings yeah, and, 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 the, and, the and weird weird it has
0: a world tree of right, course has, yeah. Yeah.
1: and then so those sorts of elements and then what is Gen Con being brought to Indianapolis except for an invocation basically of discord and Dionysus and chaos yeah. and Eris and centaurs and God knows what and all of the freaking cosplayers are all mummers in the great medieval tradition so I would say that you could probably play with that that runs the risk of being a little arch and self-referential in a game like oh it's a Gen Con and Gen Con is magic and you just slit your wrists and stop doing that but <laughs> <laughs> I think you could sort of play with that as a concept and, and, and think about it that way.
0: Oh, well, you you could argue that Gen Con also helps contain the magic by creating rules for it in mathematics yeah. and having to roll the dice. And right, yeah. The, the, sublimation a, of the magical impulse into something that people don't believe. And that
1: Gygax and Arneson are actually two sides, you know, butting heads to create this... Some. Um, uh, this universe, and one of them constrains the other one's uh, beautiful vision with a bunch of impenetrable rules and modifiers. (laughs) Now, Now uh, guess which one is which?
0: (laughs) Now, uh, due to our uh, late start and forced relocation, I think we've hit what would ordinarily have been the end date, so there will be no shame if you need to go and do something else, but we're going to keep going for a little while, because I think, uh, out of embarrassment, they've given us more time. Yeah. Uh, we'll keep going for a little while yet. Uh, and next question. Uh, the mythos, influence of, well, something worm-like probably. Uh, they, they, they seem more like Robert E. Howard characters. Uh, we're going to go for crazy 30s pulp writers as, as inspiration. They don't seem particularly...
1: So you think that they're like the Picts? They're the, the, the undermen who are being raised? I, that doesn't... I don't get that. I mean, the Fords to me seem like if you've got some force in Toronto, that is uh, a mythos force, whatever. The Fords would seem to be like the big bulbous plants that grow on it, right? Right. <laughs> they're not bad guys. They're not sorcerers. They're like symptoms.
0: Yeah. They're like a thing. They're, it, they're clearly the, the return of the repressed. Yeah. The 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 order and sensibility and uh, uh, you know the, the way things are carefully sensibly done in Toronto has created this bulging fervor of populist energy that has uh, burst out in these sort of tumor forms uh, so I don't know what, what mythology is that because uh, Lovecraft isn't particularly uh, about the, uh, they're, they're very Freudian they're, they're yeah. super Freudian right because they're, they're, they're trying to recapitulate uh, their, uh, their father's career but they're all nuts and uh, uh, you know it's, uh, it's sort of more like House of Atreus yeah kind of more Greek. or you you could i I
1: guess you could look at if you're looking at Freudian lovecraft stuff man i mean besides the thing on the doorstep, which is you know straightforward Freudian you know, right. nightmare yes, you're right but i but but it's not got anything to do with uh with with fathers um lovecraft's got father guilt not father hatred uh with the shunned and so I think you might... Well, actually, since we're talking about the Shunt House, I guess they could be the... Um, there's a big buried thing underneath Toronto, and they're like the um, uh, the congealed forms that arise, right. you know? And I, I, I think maybe Dad Ford called up what he could not put down, and they're sort of what happened to him, Right. and he yeah. just sort of sits back in his... Man, does he have a mansion? Does uh, he sit back in it? Is he uh, dead?
0: He's He's no longer with he's, us. Well... That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah. He's, he's still in the deeps, uh, in, in the depths of their decal yeah. business.
1: I, I see this as sort of a Tim Powersy story, where he thought this is going to be the way that I gain occult yeah. control of Toronto. Right. And it's like you know, just like every My magical bargain position in the Ontario legislature in, is at stake. In Tim yeah. Powers is like, oh, great, I got. Something that's a vessel for magical energy that right. turns out to be a terrible idea, <laughs> and so I, I think that you have. I, I like the notion of them as just the strange fruit that grows on the on the on the vine. That they're right. a symptom. They're an accident. That the thing that was done, the terrible deed that caused it, was done like so long ago that right. it's irrelevant there, there
0: now. A, you know, because he was a really straight-laced guy and, yeah. and had a straight-laced, boring political career, and yeah. uh, you know, if he committed some heinous sin, and this is you know, the revenge not only on his family, but unfortunately the whole rest of the city is collateral damage. Yeah.
1: I mean you could do a kind of a Tom Ford or a Robert a Rob Ford Noir, right? Where and because with yeah. the with the Fords, every time they the question is answered, it turns out it's a more horrible truth yes. than you ever thought. I mean when we first thought, you know, we were like, well he's just a crackhead and a drunk. We nothing we, wrong with that. We started
0: that. talking about Ford long before the crackhead business. The yeah. the first thing was he was gonna be kicked out for a fifteen hundred dollar infraction. Yeah. Right. And the uh you know that the, the uh, and the law was clearly written that that should happen, but a yeah. judicial tribunal looked at it, and went, "Oh, th- that seems a bit extreme." Yeah. they could have saved us so much trouble by not trying to fix mm-hmm. that badly written. Law and just going with it. Yeah. So, yeah, there's just layer after layer. And of then revolution. it's like you
1: know people being thrown out of windows. And every right. time you look into it, it's like this gets even worse. So obviously at the bottom is some sort of horrible Chinatown a, level of it's, you know. It's a, it's a Frank Miller thing. Yeah. It's,
0: it's it's Hog City. Yeah. Uh, Toronto, <laughs> being, Toronto being Hogtown, of course. Yeah, and, right.
1: Uh, and, and so I, I think that you could, you could then once you start looking at it like that, I think maybe Ramsey Campbell becomes your touchstone, right? Because he's got that Liverpool and that urban decay. Uh, sensibility. So maybe it's a Yugallen act, though, is so much more active, right? Ibor or something. This, is,
0: this, this has got to be yeah. something where it's like the beautiful outside with the ugliness, uh, yeah, you know, right. the the total contradiction of the beautiful shining city and the uh, the grub-like worms crawling beneath it. Mm-hmm. Another question.
1: Well, I mean, the the saving grace with something like the Late Bronze Age is you can pretty much make it up and someone has already agreed with you. (laughs) (laughs) Right?
0: I mean, Troy Uh, has been... And and the question, by the way, before we go on, is how do you strike a balance between a setting where you're just totally making it up and one where you have a ton of knowledge. How do you start with just a little bit of information about a setting, for example, late Bronze Age, and then springboard from that yeah. into your uh, I mean,
1: The thing that you have to keep in mind is if you're using this at a game you're going to run at the table, you only have to have more information than the most knowledgeable player. You can stop at that point, right? And if the most knowledgeable player is is cool... You don't even have that much information. You have to have enough information, you can you can check them, you can spot check them. I ran an Ars Magica campaign long ago in which one of my players, and I said it in Brittany, and one of my players was a linguistics major and he read Breton and he knew lots of Breton folktales and fairy lore and things like that. And it's like, well, I'm never going to know more about Brittany than this guy. So what I said is, you get to play an elf so you know all about Brittany and all the folklore and all the songs, and you are the resource. You're the, you're the source for that. So given that caveat, I would say the point at which with, with, the, with the minimal knowledge that you may have, or the, or the middling knowledge that you may have, I would say start extrapolating in the direction you want the campaign already to go. So if you're running a, a Troy, let's just stick with your example, Late Bronze Age Troy, and what you want is for it to imply that it was an age of godlike heroism the type the like of which we've never seen before all of your extrapolations and guesses and theories should head that direction right you should say well the ships that are coming in are are tall ships and they have you know more decks and, and more and more oars and we think maybe it's possible that a pentaconter might have been invented that early so i'm going to put pentaconters in even though maybe they didn't actually exist that early and so all of your guesses you err on the side of heroism and romance Now, if your message is no, late Bronze Age Troy was as squalid and horrible as everything always is, then err on the other side. So they get there, and it's just sort of you know, a few stones, with they're all connected by mud brick, and there's a bunch of guys sitting there picking their noses, and their and their uh, greaves are all covered with verdigris because they don't polish them, and and Priam is a is a drunk, and his kids are like half wits, and Hector is you know basically just he lucked genetically into having all of his fingers, and so that's why he's the greatest warrior, and you do that, but you can find again, like I say, there has been so much archaeological speculation about Troy, you can literally find you know site reports that will agree with either of those interpretations, and. When Again, when it's not your academic career on the line or you're not publishing a book, a real book, a grown-up people book, you can pick and choose from conflicting interpretations or you can go towards the story. The great mistake that people do is they let the research rule out story possibilities that they actually wanted to play.
0: Right, and so a thing to focus on is not knowing everything about your world or building everything about your world, but just building enough to go in the directions that you think the players are likely to go, given the situation at hand. So if they're going off to see the oracle, your preparation mentally or with notes or whatever is to think about how oracles work in your version of this culture. Um, And think about, you know, they meet the oracle, what are the three most likely things that can happen, and probably one of those three will happen, or if not, what you've thought about will get you there. So think of it in terms of, you know, modular bite-sized pieces of the setting that you are going to uh, kind of pre-riff in advance. And with enough of that to go on, you can sort of improvise the rest. And, and uh, as Ken suggests, you're going to wind up with an alternate uh, history version of it, but that's an inevitable, and so do all of the historians who disagree with
1: each Right, that I mean, given that there are differing uh, descriptions of things that happened last century and this century, right? I mean, you can find books with the same number of footnotes uh, arguing exactly opposite sides of what was uh, Baghdad like under U.S. occupation, right? And it just it might have been a matter of what street you were on in Baghdad. Uh, the same thing is going to be
0: true... And when things are happening, right. the reports all totally conflict.
1: Right, and, and so the, 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 the same thing is going to be true, you know, quadrupled and cubed in ancient Troy... Where we have all the documents that we know that we have are in Hittite, right? There's no Greek source that mentions Troy necessarily until Homer, and that's 300 years later. So there's, a, there's all manner of, of wiggle room in that situation. I, I, would, I call that situation kind of the, the perfect ground because there's just enough to backstop you. But there's not enough where you say, well, if I make M- Napoleon have laser vision, people are going to know that's not true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, or they'll know it's Cinnabar. Right, yeah. <laughs>
2: Another
0: question? Mm. Well, I'll just tell you my, my go-to meal, because I'm never in the doghouse. Uh, in part because I do all the cooking.
1: And in part because he's Canadian.
0: And, and, yeah.
1: They only have the one doghouse.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um... Well, the, my, my go-to meal, which is it, simple as good. So uh, it's a, a, you know, a shrimp and, and wine with scallions and mushrooms and uh, some garlic. Get a nice baguette down the street at the uh, French uh, cheese shop. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, one of the tricks about uh, cooking is to pick fresh ingredients and not get too fancy. And, uh, yeah, the the, the the shrimp is the show-off thing. Yeah.
1: Sheila is not fond of shrimp. I... I And you're frequently in the doghouse. Yes, I am. So I have a wider variety of of, uh, -of get-out-of-jail-free meals. For example, before I came down here, I made spaghetti carbonara, which, again, you just get good ingredients. Yep. And it's great. And it's really simple because, obviously, it's eggs, cream, uh, vermouth, uh, romano cheese. Right. You're pretty much done. And 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 the high-level achievement,
0: actually, is to walk with your loved one to the uh, market where the fresh food is, see what's good buy what's good, and whip up something based on those ingredients. That, that's, that's very impressive, high-level yeah. stuff.
1: But, you know, uh, one of the meals that we used to eat romantically was baked ziti. So if I make baked ziti, I'm sort of borrowing the significance of, of that meal from the past. And my baked ziti, is, it's fine. It's tasty. I don't know that it's anything to write home about. But I, but I have, um, uh, you know, my, she's from Omaha, so making a good steak is always a power move. And you know you get good steak which is easy to buy in Chicago less easy to buy in other benighted parts of the country but Indianapolis certainly has it you get a good wine and you can get great like Argentinian or, or Chilean wine for practically no money you you know make sure that she's got a baked potato um, uh, and then you're good there's uh, any number if you if you uh, if you want to get fancy there's um, there, there's various spice mixes that you know your spice house or pensies or whatever will offer you to put on the steak or you can just you know garlic powder salt
0: you're done and that that's really the, i mean the thing is and, and if you want to extend the period of your impressing your significant other do a slow cooker meal because she will then yeah. be, uh, he or she will then be smelling it uh, for hours and hours ahead of time and uh, reaching a fever pitch of anticipation until the that's pulled true. pork or that's roast true. chicken is available
1: mm-hmm. the um uh the pulled pork is a is a, is a real is a real killer yeah, so a lot of, and also, you know, anything that she has responded to positively before, you know, take notes. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> a- apparently chicks dig backstory. Who knew, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a callback. I recognize this.
0: Uh, next question. Uh, so the question is, why has Time Incorporated not stopped the Mongols? And uh, just because Time Incorporated has yet to stop the Mongols, uh, we have a long list of, of missions in our uh, prep document, but uh, uh, I guess the question is, how would you stop the Mongols?
1: Or maybe what is keeping us from stopping the Mongols? There's two kinds of questions.
0: uh, Hit whichever one of those balls you want to hit. Yeah. How do
1: you stop the Mongols? The simplest, probably easiest way to stop the Mongols is uh, strangle Genghis Khan in his crib. Because the thing is, you'd say, well, no, inevitably the Mongols would have mongled out. Well, historically, they didn't. There's only one time the Mongols ever mongled out. It's when Temujin, one of the five or six greatest strategic minds in history, gets to be in charge of the Mongols.
0: It's always trouble when a great strategic mind arises. Yes. a lot of people fucking nothing, die. Nothing <laughs> good about that. Um, every now and
1: again, he he he's born on the side of good. He's, he falls to earth in Kansas, not Mongolia, but <laughs> nine times out of ten, not so much. So yeah, I mean, just strangling uh, Genghis Khan. There's plenty of times that he was, you know, near death, uh, and you know, give that a shot, see what happens. Um, the reason you keep the Mongols around is because they really do—they uh, they knit the um, uh, the the ecumen together. They create a, a vast trade network. They create a vast cultural network. Central Asia, for example, is uh, brought into the into the cultural mainstream again, which is something that hadn't really happened since the the, the Greco-Bactrians fall apart. You've got a lot of um, transmission back and forth between China and and the West. Uh, things like. Uh, there there's an argument that printing technology is only really kicked off by the descriptions of block printing that are brought to the west you lose the printing press that's kind of more important than a bunch of stupid russians dying cuz they they're 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 like freaking mr magoo they're always walking into buzzsaws those russians um, but uh but I, I think that there's, there's so much uh, that is created by the existence of the Mongol trade network and the Mongol Empire that Time Incorporated is sort of like uh, holding fire. There's position papers on yeah, both there's, sides. Yeah, there's so
0: many different underpinning yeah. changes that that would wreak. Yeah, and, and also, you know... Well, you and know, the last time you did it, you came back and Tara Reid was president.
1: Yeah, which on the one hand is great, because, you know, that, the, the money looks good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, Time Magazine suddenly becomes a much more vitally interesting publication. So, you know, again, there's there's pros
0: and cons. <laughs> you you got to weigh your inter- interventions. Right. Yes. Yeah. What we're saying. Uh, another question. Okay. So this is a, a process question about the uh, Ken and Robin podcast. So I have a big Google Docs document, uh, and the script for it uh, consists of uh, if the ad uh, that we have to record that week, if we have to record an ad that week. Get to record an ad that week. Get to record that ad, ad that week. Thank you, fabulous sponsors. We, we love recording ads. Including, uh, including Atlas Games, now sponsoring the Feng Shui 2 Kickstarter. And uh, Pelgrim Press. And <laughs> Pelgrim Press, and Stoneskin Press. Um, so basically we do that, and then it's basically often four lines, one line for each segment. So the line will say, Gaming Hut colon, anatomy of an obstacle and then maybe there'll be a few little notes if I need to remember things because I'm not uh, as uh, great at uh, pulling things out of my memory as Ken is. Uh, And Ken will have a a week's notice that I've pulled something from the big master list of possible things uh, into the thing that we're going to talk about next Tuesday. So uh, he'll know a week ahead of time what the time incorporated question is or what occultists we're going to talk about or what period of uh, history or what they're going to talk about Indian movies or whatever it is, so he has time to uh, to prepare and think ahead, but it there aren't a big chunk of outtakes there aren't uh, it isn't scripted, and so uh, I wind up spending you know an hour each week actually recording the thing and maybe another hour of administrative stuff doing the uh, blog post and the, uh, setting up the script for next week and t- taking care of the donations. Thank you, generous sponsors and uh, patrons. And can you do a little bit more research?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is that part of what I think, and again, not to be too uh, meta, but part of, I think, what makes the podcast work is the sort of improvisational energy of it. And you'd think that areas that I, uh, I know solid, forward and backward would be better areas always, but they're not. I mean, I, I, you know, you can over-prep for podcasting, just like you can over-prep for gaming. And so I generally, you know, I, if I, I'd look down it, and if I already know it, I'll maybe check one or two things. And if I don't know it, uh, like, you know, what, uh, the, uh, the King Shashanka tearing down the peepal tree, I had to go look up the history of Bengal and know some things about that. Uh, but I didn't, you know, go bananas, right? I I didn't, like, you know, pull down Schwarzenberg and, and check the, the, the atlas and, and, you know, go down to the reg and look up histories of Bengal. I just sort of noodled around on Google until I got bored. And I figure once I'm bored, probably the audience is going to be bored. So, uh, and that's what I do. And some weeks I have more time and other weeks I have less time. But the, the fun of the podcast for me is
0: the improv, back and forth, what's going on, right, curveball nature. The, of it. The, the, the genesis of this was hanging out with Ken at uh, Simon Rogers' place in London uh, uh, before or after around Dragon Meet. And uh, when we sit around together just shooting the breeze, it sounds kind of like the podcast without sponsors or segment titles. So I just thought, uh, you know, I, I'm really enjoying this. Perhaps others would, too. Yeah. And that, that's where the podcast comes from. And, and also just the idea from hearing other podcasts that I thought it would be a stronger choice to have uh, four quick segments that are, you know, around a particular theme and uh, and the intros and outros sort of cut down on the, on the rambling and give you the meat of things, often people will say to me, well, I'm surprised you didn't talk about this thing or, you know, I'm surprised you didn't mention this. Or, well, I'm surprised we mentioned much of anything because they're short. Um, and inevitably, if we're doing an, ex- an exhaustive job where we're mentioning every possible thing we can mention in reference to a particular topic, we've gone on too long.
1: Yeah. And as we have to expl- uh, remind people sometimes, the title of the, the podcast is not Ken and Robin Give You an Exhaustive Bibliography. The yes. title of the podcast is Ken and Robin
0: Talk About Stuff. It's not Ken and Robin List Things. Yeah, right. Another question? Yeah, I always how sort of... Is, uh, so, the, so the question is, how, what do you do in Gumshoe when you have a really long mm-hmm. campaign and it starts to feel like the experience curve is breaking down, that they're becoming too omnicompetent? And... Uh, I generally assume most gumshoe campaigns will run, say, 16 weeks or so kind of max. Um, and so if you're going way over that number, uh, make advancement like every, you know, do the math and divide that by that, you know, so that it's every second session they get a couple of points or every uh, third session or that they have to hit break points in the narrative before they can spend their points and acquire new stuff again.
1: In, in both of my main gumshoe games have automatic fail states, right? The notion of Night Spike Agents is it's going to end. They're either going to kill the vampires or they're going to die. So if they get to the point where they seem too powerful, you need to bring some bigger vampires on stage, and you know the the curve sort of fixes itself at some level. Uh, Cthulhu, the characters are actually, they have the same, trail of Cthulhu, they have the same death spiral as uh, Call of Cthulhu characters, so you... Probably it's going to be harder for you to run a, a campaign so long in Trail of Cthulhu that the characters become omnipowerful. If you find yourself in that situation, maybe the thing to do is just stop having character advancement. You say, you've now reached the limit of human potential. You know, t- Tell me once you actually feel challenged and maybe we'll let you spend some points again. Or let uh, them use those things instead of as uh, advancements on the sheet, just let them use them as refreshes. Right? You, you take that point and you use it at like a token in Gain Reach. Right, right. So each each extra experience point you get is a token in Gay and Reach, and so you can do this, that, or the other thing with it. Um, everyone should buy the Gay and Reach because it's terrific, and um, it well, that's really the only reason to buy it is it's terrific. But it's. But terrific you haven't in so explained. Many,
0: you haven't explained exactly why the Gay and Reach by Robin Laws, new at the show, is terrific. Uh, the Guy and <laughs> Reach
1: by Robin Laws, new at the show, based on the uh, science fiction uh, revenge dramas of Jack Vance, is terrific because not only does it create a focused uh, story which we've almost uh, become uh, inured to where we're so spoiled that we see a Robin game, and right. look at that focus story, look at that beautiful drama. <laughs> yeah. It also contains a really genius intersection of the skullduggery taglines mechanic with the gumshoe econ- point economy. And so if you look at the way that that game takes the taglines and turns them into point economy,
0: Um, Uh, taglines being lines of dialogue that sound like Vance characters and you get a reward for introducing them into play in a way that seems uh, somewhat plausible
1: so I think that you could use the economy from Gay and Reach and instead of doing it by tagline you can do it by experience point Um, I I, I think that if you see it coming, if you're like I'm going to run a three year gumshoe campaign by God come hell or high water just make experience less less often uh, happen less often or um, but I, I think that most of the games are probably not going to have that kind of character continuity. And maybe what you do is you start saying, all right, you start l- 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 larding the characters down with responsibilities. reason they can't keep running off to have adventures, and maybe they got to recruit another guy that they can send. Make them be Doc Savage and get the Famous Five out there doing stuff while they stay in the in the tower and uh mind control criminals.
0: Right. And I have to say this is the first time I've ever heard someone say, I'm concerned my gumshoe characters are getting too powerful. Yes. So you you, you may have an edge case question. Yeah. But
1: because oh, we love you Pedro, idea. we'll still answer it.
0: Uh so I think we have uh time for perhaps one more question. So uh who has a doozy? The occult reason is that pressure John is really serious about enforcing his IP. Right. Uh so I mean, so, so the question is why don't we have more pressed John game supplements and material? And the
1: answer is because I have a cat and a Roku, so I've only got so much time to create stuff. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: Prester John is a great source, uh, obviously. Uh, For those not familiar, Prester John was a Christian king who uh, ruled a glorious empire of dog-headed people and people who pulled rubies out of their bellies and griffins and all kinds of great stuff somewhere over there. And in the medieval era, somewhere over there was India, or maybe Central Asia, or maybe cafe, or maybe china is over there, right? Get off, get off my back! Oh,
0: over there, with the dog-headed people.
1: As as you began to explore and understand more, and, and the Mongols knitted all of that area back into the information economy of the West, they moved Prester John to Ethiopia because turns out there is a Christian king in the middle of nowhere, and it's Ethiopia. And so they said, "Well, Christian king in the middle of nowhere, Prester John, obviously the same deal." And that's why the Portuguese basically sent mercenaries. To, uh, to buck up the Ethiopian monarchs when the Muslims uh, were invading from the Red Sea was they were like, Prester John is in trouble, we've got to go help him <laughs> which was hilarious on so many levels but, um, but yeah, now Prester John is great John Mandeville uh, it, it wrote the great uh, imaginary description of Prester John in the Middle Ages he was an English knight who may, have, may not have been English, he may have been Belgian he almost certainly never got any farther east than Belgium one way or the other but it's a it's a great travelogue of crazy nonsense, and I uh, encourage all Pendragon GMs to look at it as a sort of a, a fantasy role as the Star Wars of Camelot, if you will. I, I, mean, I, I think Prester John, part of the problem is that there hasn't been. A a text that's familiar in the modern day for people to use as their as their touchstone. Atlantis. You've got all kinds of Atlantis references. Lemuria of the Theosophists making a big screaming deal out of it. Uh, Camelot obviously has has never been dead in in the Western imagination. Prester John, once we, once those Portuguese mercenaries got to Ethiopia and said this isn't Prester John, <laughs> then the, the sort of the bottom fell out of that legend because you ran out of other places to put him, and so. Also, once you know, the, the Crusades sort of ended, it became less fun to imagine that there was a giant Christian kingdom that was going to come down and beat the hell out of the Muslims. I mean, you could certainly, if you wanted to have nothing to do with anything I'm saying on this podcast, run a really interesting Prester John game where CIA paramilitary occultists are trying to make contact with a giant invisible kingdom of, of militant Christendom in the middle of Asia, Uh, They're trying to create Prester John's kingdom in Afghanistan so that they can put paid to Islam once and for all, and that would be a very interesting way of looking back at the Crusades and currently at the War on Terror and forward to all kinds of questions. Plus, you'd get to put griffins up against Apache gunships, and that'd be pretty neat. Um, But... That's the sort of thing that if you published it, you would get into so many fights on the internet that it would not really be worth trying.
0: You'd, you'd have to <laughs> hire Ars Magica uh, yeah. developers to fight your oh, internet fights. Right,
1: right. <laughs> yeah, people who had been trained in, in sort of the, the, the iejutsu of, um, uh, of Ars Magica Flame Wars.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I think we've reached a uh, little past our appointed uh, and adjusted time, so thank you so much, everybody, for coming and for uh, your great questions, and let's hit that outro.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Stone Skin Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And
0: Pell-Grain Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Lighten yourself of post-Gen Con pocket change by clicking the donate button at kennerobin.talkaboutstuff.com.
1: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or convention by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.